Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And we are back with number four on the AFI Top 100 list. Holy cow. I know, right? 1980s Raging Bull. Yep, Raging Bull. Have you seen this one? I had not seen this one before. I don't think I had really even heard of it. I mean, I'm sure my eyes glanced across it during, you know, looking at this printed out sheet I've had now for, what, five years? Mm-hmm. But didn't know anything about it. Very surprised it was another boxing movie. Yeah, I knew it was another boxing movie. I, I was familiar enough to know that. And that it had De Niro. I just feel like we've we've had a boxing movie on this list already. I, well, and maybe a... And, be a better boxing movie already on this list oh my gosh shot fired ah! so early but before we get into that why don't you give us a plot synopsis yes so raging bull is the story of jake lamada a particularly vicious but not overly talented boxer jake's younger brother and manager joey suggests to him in 1941 that with some mafia connections jake could have a shot at the middleweight title Jake resists. Shortly after he spies a teenage girl named Vicky at a local public pool, Jake pursues her despite his own marriage. They are eventually married. Uh, Jake begins his boxing rivalry with Sugar Ray Robinson, beginning a series of fights that the two will have over the span of many years. Jake dominates him during the fight, but Sugar Ray wins. After marrying Vicky, Jake becomes increasingly jealous and paranoid. When she mentions that his upcoming challenger is good-looking, Jake responds by beating the man to a pulp in the ring. Later, Joey sees Vicky with several mafia men at the Copacabana Club and starts a fight with mobster Salvi. Uh, Joey viciously beats Salvi, but the two are prompted by the local mob boss to make up. The boss tells Joey that Jake will need mafia help to have a chance at any title. So Jake is instructed to take a dive in an upcoming fight, which he does, though he's suspended by the board for doing so, and he realizes really that it wasn't that great of an idea. Later, he's reinstated, and he wins the middleweight championship title. Sometime later, Jake asks Joey about the specifics of the incident at the Copacabana. Joey doesn't really reveal what happened, uh, but also refuses to answer Jake's question of whether or not Vicky and Joey slept together. Jake confronts Vicky, and after he hits her and breaks down a door, she sarcastically admits to sleeping with the entire block. Jake beats her, uh, stomps over to Joey's house, uh, where he beats him in front of his wife and children. Later... (laughs) There's a lot of later in this uh, plot synopsis. Jake defends his title, and when Vicky prompts him to call Joey and make up, Jake does attempt to talk to Joey. However, Joey, assuming that it's Salvi calling him and not speaking, begins to curse at Jake, who hangs up. Uh, Without Joey, Jake's career begins to peter out, and he loses several of his rematches to Sugar Ray. So Jake retires and moves to Miami where he opens a nightclub. Vicky leaves Jake and he's arrested for introducing underage girls to men in his club. In a desperate move, Jake tries to sell the jewels from his championship belt, but the jeweler says that without the belt, the gems alone are not worth enough to save Jake. Shortly after, he goes to jail where he wails in despair. After jail, Jake returns to New York where he works as a comedian. He sees his brother one night uh, and tries to reconcile. Joey seemingly accepts, albeit reluctantly. 
Several years go by, and Jake, now a portly comedian, practices the contender speech from On the Waterfront. Before going out to perform, he shadow boxes in the green room as the film ends. So a couple things here worth mentioning in your plot synopsis. I think it's a good thing you said that Vicky sarcastically admits to sleeping with everyone on the mm-hmm. block because that's really the main crux of this entire film. You mentioned that it's a worse boxing film than Rocky, yeah. which is true. It is a worse boxing film. Minus maybe one scene we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's not a boxing movie exactly. Much in the same way Rocky really isn't a boxing movie. Right, yeah. At least in the ring it's not. But all of that is him working up to his shot. Whereas this is a lot closer to On the Waterfront, which this movie Mm -hmm. goes ahead and lets you know right up front (laughs) (laughs) that it's heavily influenced by it. And is more about this the mindset of Jake LaMotta. Mm -hmm. This horrible mental paranoia and jealousy that he has and how it cripples him emotionally and even in some ways physically toward Mm -hmm. the end of the film oh yeah definitely you also mentioned there's a lot of later in that plot synopsis yeah but the film jumps around in terms of years like i think he gets put on probation and it's two years later suddenly and he's getting his title shot fight right Mm -hmm. so it's it's one of those things where I think we span like 16, 15 years, something like that. Yeah, and it and it does do those nice little jumps, yeah. So it just kind of pulls ahead. It, it fits and starts, I guess, is the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. But the thing I want to think about next is our pivotal scene, and I think the one that will be best suited to this happens about an hour and 27 in. It's where Jake is asking Joey... So Robert De Niro's character asking Joe Pesci, Joe Pesci looking a lot like Tony Shalhoub in this movie, (laughs) asks his brother Joey what happened at the Copacabana. Mm -hmm. And they go into this long dance. And the reason I've chosen this as significant is that I think it best shows Jake's paranoia and jealousy as it shifts from, well, what did Salvi do? What's Vicky's involvement? What's going on? to then asking his brother if he slept with his wife, Mm -hmm. which then again leads to that big fallout where he goes and beats up his brother and they don't reconcile for years, right? Yeah. And this is really where things, after this, things do seem to go pretty downhill for for Jake. Right. So let's listen to a snippet of this. There's much more of this scene, but it's, it's it's a slow burn for it to move back and forth and how it warps in Jake's mind. So I've only given us about two minutes of it. Salvi fuck Vicky. What? Salvi fuck Vicky. Hey, Jack. Don't Joe. start your shit. No, really, don't start. Joey, I asked you. Didn't I ask you to keep an eye on it? And I did keep an eye on it. Yes, I what did. How come you gave him a beat? I told you that. I told you what that was all about. Didn't have nothing to do with you. He's, he thinks he's a Joey, wise guy now. Joey, don't lie to me. I'm not lying. What do I look like to you, huh? Hey, I'm your brother. You're supposed to believe me. Don't you trust me? No, I don't. Oh, you don't? That's nice. I don't trust you when it comes to her. I don't trust nobody. Now tell me, what happened? I told you exactly what happened. He got out of line, I slapped him around, Tommy straightened it all out, and it's all over. You give me that look, Joey. I gotta accept your answer, you know? 
But I'm telling you now, if I hear anything, I swear on our mother, I'm gonna kill somebody. I'm gonna kill somebody, Joey. Well, go ahead and kill everybody. You're a tough guy, go kill people. Kill Vicky, kill Salvi, kill Tommy Como, kill me while you're out. What do I care? You're killing yourself the way you eat. You're a fat fuck, look at you. What do you mean, I don't understand, what do you mean kill you? Me, kill me. Start here, kill me first, do me a fucking favor. Cause you're driving me crazy. You're a killer, you're a big shot. Just kill, you're a killer. Excuse me, what do you mean by you though? So? What does that mean? Don't yeah, mean nothing. Even, even you don't even know what you meant by you. Don't mean nothing. Joey, that meant something. You mentioned Tommy, you mentioned Salvi, you mentioned you. You included you with them. You could have said anybody, but you said you and them. You really let this girl ruin your life. Look at you. She really did some job on you. You know how fucking nuts you are? Look what she did to you. You fucked my wife. What? You fucked my wife. How could you ask me a question like that? How could you ask me? I'm your brother. You ask me that? Where do you get your balls big enough to ask me that? Okay. So the reason I mentioned for us listening to that scene is it gives us a glimmer of Jake's mental state and how it's just deteriorating. There's mm-hmm. also some cinematography done with this as well. The frames per second speed up when he's in like his suspicion paranoia mode. Is that true? Yeah, I saw something about that. And it is true when Tommy, the mob boss, comes in and Vicky gets up and you know gives him a kiss and greeting. Everything slows down because the frame per second is sped up, right? So it doesn't look like it should. Things are kind of jerky or slowed down looking because it's Jake. And we're seeing th- the way it's composed. You're seeing, you know, we're going between Jake, a close shot of Jake's face to the action around him. So we know we're seeing through Jake's eyes, so to speak, right? And mm-hmm. it's it's the case several times throughout the film that that's true when he sees her. So, and it's never really in a positive light. It's always in a negative one. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the mental state of Jake, I chose this because it really wasn't until this part of the film that I understood what the movie was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I should mention Martin Scorsese or Scorsese, however you want to say it. I suppose there's a right way, but I hear it different <laughs> all the time in every movie podcast, so I'm not even going to weigh in. No. Very talented director. So what's going on with this film that just seems to be the train wreck of a person, mm-hmm. you know, couched in the guise of a boxing film? Yeah. Well, it's pretty much that, right? We're watching this deterioration of a person. I went out and ro- read Roger Ebert's review of this film. It's like, certainly he's reviewed Raging Bull, right? Number mm-hmm. four in the top 100. Sure enough, he has. Loved it. And loved it because we're watching this collapse of a person, someone who is so hamstrung by their relationship with women specifically, mm-hmm. and talks about that Madonna whore complex in which he's so in love with this woman and holds her on such a high pedestal, but then also simultaneously sees her as the most debased creature. Right. Because once she's finally succumbed to his advances, he can't think of any other way that she would not then do the same for other men. Every other man, yeah. So it poisons every relationship in his life, and it's all his fault, right? Vicky, I think, is made out to be a little bit of a villain in the film in 
some of her non-answers or some of the ways in which we don't understand what she means. Mm-hmm. And I think that's entirely supposed to be seen as the close third person to Jake. I She doesn't really seem to have any motivation to not, <laughs> you know, be happy with him. Yeah. So that's the real value of this film, I think, is watching this mental collapse. And that doesn't make it an enjoyable film. I had a conversation with a friend about this. I don't enjoy the film. No, it's no, it's not pleasant to watch. But it's a good <laughs> film. It's it is it's well made. I mean, that is really what is going on here. I think is that it is a well made film. And and I've thought about this with with because we've done several Martin Scorsese films here. And I think my problem with a Martin Scorsese film. And, and perhaps this this is a good exa- this film is a good example of it is this his movies are always about you know these these sort of declines these uh, I mean think about Goodfellas right it's this movie about like oh you know he really wants to be a gangster and and of course when he gets his wish when he becomes a gangster he, you know you find out that that life is not what you want it to be right it's it's yeah. awful it's very unpleasant and and the film ends really with not very much hope and i think that the, this is really similar to what's happening here this is a film about a violent paranoid man who uh you know acts in a violent way he beats everyone he can uh the only the only power to him is is physical power to dominate other people uh literally for his for his profession um and and all that does is is bring destruction and pain to his life and the life of those around him, uh, and and the film ends without any hope. What what is there? To, what does the what does it leave us with at the end? Right, it leaves us with this washed up, overweight, you know, broken, alone, old man. Right. I don't know about that. I mean, there is a potential redemption with his brother. And he's contemplative, right? He's reflecting on his life. I don't think that's ever going to be rock bottom if you're able to think about the results of your choices. Yeah, I and I wouldn't necessarily say he's he's at rock bottom, but I don't. I mean, what is the? I mean, maybe there's hope of redemption with his brother, but but other than that, I mean, what does he become? Right? Like he's he's. I mean, that it ends with that on the waterfront speech, right? He could have been a contender, but he was not. Well, it's a little bit different in the sense that he held the title belt. True. I mean, he did hold the title and, and all of that, right? But but he held it and it's gone, right? He literally dismantled it. Well, th- that's why I think that scene is important because he doesn't give anything but the jewels, right? He could have right. given the whole belt, but he keeps that because obviously it meant a lot to him. Yeah, no, I'm, and I think that it does remain this sort of symbol uh, of what he had. But, you know... I guess at the end he's left with his belt without the gems in it and maybe a possibility of a relationship with his brother. But but I just see – I don't see a whole lot of hope in the ending. And I think that Martin Scorsese's films really kind of chase after that. Uh, and, and I think that's part of the reason why it's hard and, – and, of course, it's really violent, right? Uh, and the violence in this film serves only really to, to show that he's violent, Right. Uh, it's not the sort of aestheticized violence of Quentin Tarantino, right? It's it's just shocking. 
and and un- and unpleasant to watch. Well, it's supposed to be right because the only way that Jake is able to interact with the world is through violence, and yes. so after these moments of crippling emotional inability or paranoia or mistrust he goes and beats the ever-loving shit out of somebody mm-hmm. especially after that first one forget the other fighter's name but the wife absently mindedly calls him yeah. good looking and he mm-hmm. destroys this person so like, yeah. i think i have a note like he just kills this kid like it is it is ridiculous so the 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 visceral nature of these fights is incredibly well done and that's something I think I'll, I'll speak to in our three questions. I have a little bit more to follow up with that. But, you know, a, a quote from Ebert here, because I really did, you know, see his review as the key mm-hmm. for me to see why this movie is valuable. He says, Raging Bull is the most painful and heartrending portrait of jealousy in the cinema, an Othello for our times. And if you think of it through the guise of, you know, Shakespeare and Othello, then we know that it's all in Jake's head. He's building all this up. It's his mistrust, distrust, the world around him. Fell was more deeper, obviously, because there's a race component Mm -hmm. and how that plays into his social situation. But with Jake, we get very early on Joey asking him why he's such an animal. And he basically gives this answer of his hands being small, right? Which we can take that as emblematic for a deeper meaning in that Mm -hmm. he's always the underdog, right? He's always having to fight for something. Anything he doesn't fight for, he doesn't get. And that's true throughout his life, right? As you mentioned, his profession. Mm -hmm. So everything he does is to fight for something. So once he has it, he doesn't know what to do with it. And his mind warps into a way that he needs to fight for something again. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, if we, if we do think about this as a story that is about, you know, jealousy that is truly a story because that does make a lot of sense and and i think there is a lot of value in in that sort of reading of this uh but but then it sort of like leads me to ask you know how do we as an audience uh identify with with um with jake i think i i wonder if we're we're really invited not in any way to to uh identify with him and maybe that makes it more poignant maybe that makes it less poignant i'm i'm not sure well if you are unable to identify in any way in any circumstance with jake lamada and his jealousy you sir are a superior human being and have never fallen prey to the green monster i suppose i mean i i guess i i i guess it, it, the, at the end of the day the the part of the jealousy that i don't quite understand is the the sort of like spousal jealousy because that's just not something that's really on my radar uh i mean certainly i think if we think about it as jealousy in general right that's that's very present uh but but seeing it through this like you know distrust and and really sort of hate of women uh you know becomes very i think we're meant not to to really i mean i think we're meant to see jake as a monster uh but maybe not an irredeemable one. I, I don't know. I don't think I agree with him being a monster. I think this is the logical conclusion of jealousy unchecked. And okay. I think it is supposed to show your microcosms of jealousy in the macro and say, this is a life of jealousy. And yeah. I don't know if I'm trying to make the argument that it's a moral story in that way, but I think that's definitely a main through line of it is to to show that path. 
But maybe we should take a look at our three questions because this could help us unravel the mystery of Raging Bull. Yeah, maybe. Before that, though, let's talk about Anchor. Sure. Okay, first question. What do we owe to this film? But in this case, very recent film, 1980, recent being relative on the AFI Top 100. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to ask, what does this film owe to that which came before it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think any boxing movie, we have to talk about Rocky, right? Uh, or any movie that includes boxing, right? Uh, but in many ways, this is sort of the anti-Rocky. I mean, we can really put that these two films up against each other uh, and and see how they are, are in many ways opposites, right? Like, Ro- Rocky is a film that I think is, is endlessly hopeful, even in defeat, right? Uh, with a character we're meant to, to love um, and sort of go on a journey with, whereas this, I think we're meant to... Uh, not to, like as I said, I think we're meant not to love him, right? We're meant to sort of see this as a, as caution, uh, because it's so. I mean, I just think about these two films, and they're the plots are so similar. There are so many pieces that that connect, right? Um, but tonally and and in terms of what they're saying, it's so different. I don't know if I agree that these films are opposites. I would say they're in parallel. I think they're speaking to different points of the mind, right? Rocky is questing for love and acceptance as well as his personal ambition. He gets most of that, right? Or finds out that it's actually love and acceptance that matters more than personal ambition in this Mm -hmm. title. Of course, they go and make more films, which I haven't seen, so I can't really speak to those. But there is something valued at the end of that film. I think there's something valued at the end of this film, this film being Raging Bull, in Jake LaMotta's realization that his choices has put him down a very particular kind of road. And I don't know. I think some of those scenes where he's being heckled as a comedian and he talks these people off, I don't know. That that seems to be a newer Jake than someone who would probably just beat the living crap out of you then. And I'm sure you could be an overweight aging comedian and still pack a punch (laughs) yeah yeah so i I don't know that might be something of a new leaf i know he's not nearly as glorious he's not nearly as happy no i mean he's he's a bad comedian he's not fun (laughs) right i mean well i mean what can you expect from kind of a strip club comedian that's right it's the one he's with as a stripper but and she's also called like something 48s or something. So it was like, yeah. ah, this lady, I think she's taking her glove off. That might be movie language for taking clothes off. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's something offered at the end of this film, if not to Jake, but at least to the viewer. And I, I think it shows, especially Jake in that prison cell, or I guess it's just a jail cell, mm-hmm. where he's hitting the walls and yelling why, and then starts calling himself a dummy, right? He, he kind of recognizes that he is broken in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that provides a path forward for him to fix it, but it posits the opportunity for it. Yeah. I, I, okay. I mean, I can buy that. I, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, I just really see it. If again, with this Rocky comparison, I, I see that the, the violence of these films is, is handled so differently, right? Like, and and the and what these men fight for and literally why they fight right uh, just feels so 
vastly different, right? That because we, I mean, really, we see Jake until he finally truly gives up fighting, which is maybe after that prison scene. Uh, you know, he he's fighting for for dominance, for power, to be in control, right? Uh, to to be the one on top, and and I don't think we see that in Rocky, right? Rocky fights for for something else. I don't know. If you choose to go into boxing as a career, I'm going to make a hot take, bold statement here and say that you were fighting for dominance and control in some aspect. Of course. You could have done anything else. You chose, I want to (laughs) beat someone physically with my fists until they say I'm the winner and I'm better than this man. I think there's something to that being a physical domination aspect or a complex in your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, And I certainly don't want to disagree with that. Um, because I do think you're right, but I do think that there, the, the way we see the fighting set up in, in Rocky is, is a weird, especially compared to this is almost weirdly sanitized, you know, if that make it, does that make sense? I guess it makes sense in the sense that this film, Raging Bull goes to great lengths to make the little boxing it does do as brutal as possible but, uh, yes they're deeply brutal right and and uh, yeah so i don't know i i don't know well i think we can recap this first question we've answered so much of this already yeah obviously it owes a lot to rocky which came out in 1976 so plenty of time for this film to be influenced mm-hmm. by it this film also influences other scorsese films like goodfellas comes out yes. a little bit later I think The Departed is very similar in the Scorsese mm-hmm. oeuvre. And any films about psychological collapse or decay, I think, take notes from this. But it's not a sports movie, right? It's no, voted it's really like the not. third greatest sports movie, but it's not, right? Rocky's the greatest sports movie. This yes. is probably the greatest dark look at a psyche slowly being destroyed, which is also... There are a lot of elements of Taxi Driver in here, right? The mm-hmm. two young women and and sort of a... Yeah. a and that's a, Scorsese too, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. De Niro is in all of these films, yeah. as, as it turns out. But, you know, a a main character who has some internal flaw or a mm-hmm. broken piece or something. So we can go ahead and move on to our second question, which is, does it hold up? You know... If we're going to talk purely in terms of of the of what we see on the screen, then yes, I mean I think that the way that it uses these sort of almost impressionistic shots, these the the way it uses sound, the way it uses uh, the the medium, really does show mastery. Uh, now this this plot of of violence and. Uh, misogyny and and sort of domination i i don't think that that has aged as well as as we might have liked or as scorsese might have liked right it's hard to watch uh there's a lot of wife beating you know that that stuff i think is i don't know i guess maybe i like that less that could be it too <laughs> well i don't think anyone's supposed to like it right it's not supposed yeah. to be fun to watch you're not supposed to feel good when he slaps Vicky around yeah an actress who I think is actually only 19 at the time of the film. Yeah, I think so. So she's actually a very young woman compared to De Niro anyway. But it, it's supposed to be painful, right? I don't think it's supposed to be 
good and i think yeah. it still holds up because when i'm answering this question of does it hold up is it still accomplishing the same objectives it wants to accomplish yeah and it wants to upset you in that regard and i think yeah. it does so not needlessly as some films do especially some horror films do mm-hmm. i think i think it still holds up in that regard now the thing i really think it holds up has to do with the visceral nature of the combat right it's beyond boxing really at this point you get a lot of like Akira Kurosawa blood spray effects in all this boxing. There's a lot of blood. Which is not something that you would see in a boxing match quite in that way, in the slow motion that they've done it with. But Mm -hmm. it is to make an aesthetic point about this violence, which is where I disagree about it not being an aesthetic violence, because I think think they're very much going out of their way to make it over the top in this way. Mm -hmm. And then furthermore, Jake's final fight against ray i saw something that scorsese didn't really know how he wanted to execute it so went back to the uh, shot sequence of psycho the shower scene really and pretty much just copied that wow and you can see that in a lot of ways two very notable examples is that final punch ray raising his fist like a boxer would not raise his fist as if he were holding a knife instead of punching and then the blood on the ropes dripping down is kind of like the blood in the shower drain. So I thought that was really masterfully done. And knowing that, I think it really enhanced my appreciation for that violence. So I do think that is probably the most visceral fighting I've ever seen on film. And we saw Rocky and we saw that newer film Warrior, which obviously tried to make a lot of impact with its punches and its kicks and things like that. Which but I still was, think... Which one was Warrior? Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton go to some magical mixed martial arts tournament to win a million dollars to save. Oh, yeah. Now I remember. Yeah. And it, it had a lot of fight. It was mostly a fighting movie in that regard. It yeah. definitely came off the back of something like Rocky. And, and now, having seen Raging Bull, can say that it tried to do that as well, right, with yeah. Tommy's mental state and how it's collapsing. But mm-hmm, yeah, I think even for a, a, a very modern film, it doesn't do nearly as well at impactful violence which i think is a keystone for this if you take ebridge review and also i think my understanding of it now that this is the fallout of of this mind who just can't deal with jealousy mm-hmm. and manifest with rage yeah so let's ask our third question then okay do we care Oh, this is kind of a tough one, I think, for for me, for Scorsese films, because I think what I'm learning is that I care less about the Scorsese films than other people do. (laughs) Um, But I think that this one, compared to the other ones I've seen, and it's now I have to remind, we've got to remind myself that, you know, it's been a long time since I've watched Godfather and we haven't done it for this podcast. Yeah. but this is in many ways a pretty quintessential... This this hits all the major boxes for what you get out of a Scorsese film. Violence, uh, De Niro, The Mafia, uh, beautiful cinematography. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, I guess I care about it because I think it is the... Perhaps the quintessential Scorsese film. Because let's be honest, there are the, the, a lot of like <laughs> all of them uh but do i care about this in the larger do i care about scorsese films in the larger sort of understanding i don't i i care less about them i think than other movies i think i definitely care about this film 
I don't particularly like this film. Yeah. I didn't I, enjoy it, but then no. again, that's not the purpose of the film. So no. I like to reflect on this film. I like yeah. to reflect on what it's saying, but it's not something I want to watch again, maybe ever. Yeah, I, I, I agree, actually, wholeheartedly. I think that, you know, there is a lot to be valued in this film, but I don't want to really return to it. And I mean, maybe not quite as viscerally as, uh, what's that big Vietnam one that I just never need to see? Is that Apocalypse Now that I think I never need to see again? Yeah, I think I remember you mentioning that. Yeah, I, I think that one may be on this list, like the one, the most visceral one where I was like, I don't ever want to watch that again. I don't want to, it takes, it's, there's so much time and all that. This is a film that I think I could, I could watch again, but it will be a long time. I think it's a dark place to go. It asks you to go down a very dark hole and that's hard to do. Unless you live there. Unless you live there. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us this week. We will be back next time on the AFI, AFI Top 100 with number three on the list, which is 1942's Casablanca. Casablanca. And then we do Godfather 1 and 2, and then the last one. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. But until that time, I have been Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I should have made a joke here about being a contender. My, see how this is falling apart at the very end? Now I don't even... I, my joke is so meta that I'm like, this is what my joke should be about. There will be spoilers. <laughs> there Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.